I, I look forward to this particular time with great joy because uh, I'm among friends. Uh, I've known so many of you over the years and we've labored together so closely. Uh, it's a special joy for me to be among my friends. Some of my dearest friends in the earth are in this room tonight. And uh, that also gives me a certain um, leeway to say things that um, I would otherwise be more careful about saying. Um, and uh, uh, so I intend in that spirit to, to talk to you about the time and the season in which we are. But of course the intent is not merely to provide commentary, but more to the point, I wish to articulate what I believe God would have you know and understand that about this season and how you ought to position yourself relative to a point of view from heaven. It's quite interesting that in the, in the church and in religion as a whole, we have been reduced almost exclusively to the secular. And as a result, massive happenings are taking place before us, and we're attempting to grapple with the understanding of what these things mean with the very hobbled and limited view provided by reason. When the only way to properly interpret what we are, what we are seeing taking place, which things are increasingly encroaching upon all, upon so many things that we value, and indeed upon all aspects of life. Um, the, the, it is no longer just a benign exercise to watch these things unfold, because they're pressing us on every side. And invariably, we will end up either panicking because the press has, has become so intrusive or we will look for real answers. Now, we've tried our hand at answering by connecting ourselves to political parties and secular trends. And those views will, will disappoint us as surely as we've been disappointed by other very limited views of heavenly things. So it is critical that we have an eternal view upon the things that are occurring. But without assuming that you know that we should have or that we could have an eternal view, I would like to, uh, to just address in brief strokes the idea that we can and we should have an eternal point of view on natural things. Amen. We're seeing all kinds of these things happening around us. From a train that runs through uh, here in Midland and strikes afloat and kills four people. A thing that shocked the community. It made the news all over the world by the way, to, and, and a community grappling with, uh, with what that means and people sometimes angrily retorting 
you know, if there is a God, why do things like these happen? You know, and so on and so forth. Quite frankly, the reason we cannot understand these things that, that come through is that we do not have an eternal point of view, but we ought to have an eternal point of view. So as a threshold issue, I'd like to just introduce to you the fact that we can have an eternal point of view. Jesus once said to Nathanael, as Nathanael came to him the first time and and subsequently became a disciple of his, uh, in the book of Mark, Nathanael came to him and Jesus said, now there is an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And Nathanael said, uh, how do you know me? He was not especially modest, I don't think. (laughs) How do you know me? And Jesus said, well, I saw you under the fig tree. Uh, and, And he knew that there was no one else looking on as he was under the fig tree. So the fact that he was told uh, this specific thing about where he was and what he was doing led him to conclude that this man had a way of seeing that was greater than what he encountered in other men. And he related that fact to to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus then replied to him in context of that statement. Jesus replied to him and said, Nathaniel, the days are coming when, to paraphrase, when there will be an explosion of this kind of vision. And, and the way he characterized it was, you will see heaven open. You will see heaven open. And angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now keep in mind, the context of that statement was where Jesus had said to Nathanael, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathanael understood that Jesus was nowhere around when he was under the fig tree. This was not a sight based upon proximity to, 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 to his location. This was a sight that could see him as far distant his location as one person as the opposite side of the world. And Jesus was saying to him, This is not unusual for me. I can see you anywhere. I can see whatever I need to see. And in fact, this is not unique to me. The times are coming when you will see heaven open. And angels, angelos, messengers, that's what the term means, ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now, there's a distinct difference between the angels who ascend and descend and the angels who descend and ascend. These things are not just clever turns of words. These things have to represent substantial and lasting and reliable points of view. Not just twists and turns of phrases, but entire ways of seeing things. Now, the word angel, angelos, means messenger. The angels who descend and ascend are messengers 
whose points of origin is heaven. When you descend, you come out of heaven from the throne of God. And you come to bring a decree to the earth concerning a time and a season that God has already ordained. Events that God has already ordained. Such messengers bring messages like, a child is to be born. They will tell, uh, Gabriel will tell Mary that heaven has now said that you have found favor and you will be the one who carries the child who is the desire of the ages. Or messengers will descend from heaven and they will encounter the likes of Daniel and they will say, now Daniel, while you started to pray, God sent me to bring you a message concerning the return of your people to Israel and all the events that will unfold, including the consummation of the age, as these events affect your people. (coughs) Pardon me. So, the angels who descend begin in heaven and they bring certain messages from heaven. These messages are statements of fact. The way the world is going to be from now on. But, They are angels who ascend, messengers who ascend and descend. Those messengers begin where? If the angels who descend and ascend begin in heaven, where do the angels who ascend and descend begin? On the earth. Keep in mind that the term angel means messenger. So some messengers are spirit beings like archangels, who come out of heaven to bring messages from the throne of God to men. And some messengers are human messengers who are invited to ascend to the throne of God to be shown things in heaven, to come back to the earth and to declare those things in the earth. So Paul would say, or or rather John the Apostle would say, in the book of Revelation chapter 4 verse 1, while he was on the island of Patmos, he would say, A door was standing open before me into heaven, and I heard a voice saying, Come up here, ascend, come up here, and sit with me, and I will show you what is to come. Revelation 4 1. And then he would say, immediately, at once, I was in the Spirit. Now, he was caught up through this door into heaven, and this man changed, as it were, changed his raiment, put off one body, took on another, and was in heaven, but he was there in a spiritual condition. Now, from heaven, things looked differently. He goes on in chapter 5 of the book of Revelation to talk about how someone was sitting on the throne and he held a scroll in his hand. 
And this scroll was sealed on both sides. With seven, excuse me, the, the seal, had, the, 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 the scroll had writings on both sides and was sealed with seven seals. And he said, no one appeared to be found worthy who could take the scroll and break open the seals and, and declare what was on the scroll. And he wept because he understood that the very purpose for which he had been called up to heaven was to be made aware of what was written on both sides of that scroll. And unless someone could be found worthy to take the seal, break, or to take the scroll and break the seals and reveal what was written, then his visit to heaven was largely just a sightseeing trip. But the intent of his call to heaven was that he would be made aware of heaven's decrees. And he wept and he wept and he said, suddenly, I was told not to weep because someone was found worthy. And the one who was found worthy, you'll remember, was the lion of the tribe of Judah. He said, don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah has been found worthy to take the scroll and to, uh, to open the seals. And then he said, I looked and there was a lamb standing in the middle of the circle around the throne. Now, I thought you just said a lion of the tribe of Judah. He hears a lion, and when he looks and sees, it's a lamb. And they're the same thing. But naturally, a lion is not a lamb. They're the opposite ends of the food chain. And no lamb would want to be a lamb in the presence of a lion. Nor would a lion want to be a lamb if it meant that he has to go back to the back of the line. But in heaven, you have to keep your eye on what is being said because you have to keep your, you have to, you have to keep your focus on what is true from heaven because in heaven, it is possible, not only is it possible, it is true and real that the lion and the lamb are the same because Heaven is different from earth. The rules of heaven are different from the rules of the earth. For heaven is where the perfection of the wisdom of God is put on display. And in the perfect wisdom of God, a lion and a lamb may be the same, without compromise to either one. How is that so? Well, because there are, two types of, there are two types of lions. At least there's another lion in Scripture. A devouring lion. One who seeks whom he may devour. And goes around seeking prey. Now that's not the same as the lion of the tribe of Judah. That lion is a prowler who seeks to, to take advantage of the lack of vigilance, who takes advantage of every human weakness to devour. He's the ultimate predator. Now, if the lion of the tribe of Judah is of the same nature and character as the devouring lion, and he is the greater lion, 
then he is the ultimate of that species. And therefore, he validates the existence of the devouring lion just by himself also being a devourer. If you defeat the devourer by devouring, you are the head of the class. And everything in the class is legitimate if you are legitimate. But our lion does not overcome in that way. Our lion overcomes in the fashion of a lamb. In the fashion of a sacrifice. Because our lion puts on display the inevitable triumph of righteousness over evil. And our lion is secure in being the lamb. Because our lion and our lamb cannot be destroyed. And there is no one to devour our, our conqueror. Because his ways are superior. My point is that from heaven the view is different. So when the angel was invited, when the man, <coughs> pardon me, when John the Angelos was invited to ascend, he beheld heaven, but what he saw in heaven was a different order of being. And when he comes back to the earth, he relates that order of being to the earth. So some angels are invited to come up, to ascend, and descend. And what they bring with them is supposed to change the earth. Another of these angels who ascended and descended said, I met a man 14 years ago, and the record of this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I met a man 14 years ago. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I cannot say. Now, what did he meet? A man, not a spirit being. He said, I met a man 14 years ago. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. Most people believe that when Paul was writing this, he was referring to the occasion where, whereupon outside of the city of Lystra, where he had been stoned and left for dead, that that was the time when he was caught up into the heavens. And it would be why he would say, whether I was in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, because the, the people who were there left him for dead. In fact, after that, he claims that having gone into heaven... He received from the Lord the understanding of the mystery of how God was reconciling the Jew and the Gentile to himself in the spiritual body of Christ. When he came back and took possession of his own body, you know what he did? He took his shoes off, beat the dust off his feet, and said, from now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. Because having been taken up to heaven... He was given the revelation of how God was reconciling the Gentiles to himself. And I would say that he also received the revelation and the commission to go to the Gentiles. So when he came back and beat the dust off his feet and declared he was no longer going to the Jews, it was not just suddenly an act of frustration where he was fed up with, with being bad, 
treated poorly by the, by, the, by the Jews. It was that he had gotten from heaven a revelation of the reconciliation of the Jew and the Gentile in the body of Christ and had been commissioned himself to go to the Gentiles. Of course. You see? So heaven will change your view. When you interact with the reality of heaven, it will change your view of what is going on around you. I would like to suggest to you that part of the paralysis that the church is experiencing now is the lack of understanding of a heavenly point of view. We have so narrowed our views and our views have been narrowed by the exercise of reason. Now please don't misunderstand me. Reason is useful, but it ought to be regarded for its limitations as well. You see? The greater thing is not reason. Access into the presence of God does not provide us with the results of reason. Access into the presence of God provides us with revelation. Revelation is a quantum leap beyond reason. If you have reason, you're earthbound in your perspectives. You're obligated to observe the limitations of perspectives inherent in the exercise of reason. Revelation, however, will unveil to you the secrets of the eternal. And it's one of the reasons why Zechariah the prophet prophesied so many centuries ago that in the end of the age, God will arouse the sons of Zion against the sons of Greece. And he will make the sons of Zion like a warrior's bow. Greece is known for its reason. The sons of Zion are known for revelation. They are those to whom God gives access because he calls them to be the angelos who ascend to descend. When they ascend, they function as watchers because they are not allowed to participate, they are simply observers. John was not allowed to, to make any statement at all in heaven that affected anything going on in heaven. You know, he could say that he was, he could weep and weep, but that didn't change anything. He was there as a watcher, an observer. And when you are invited to come up and see these things in the capacity of a watcher, when God releases you to come back, you may speak what you've seen, provided he does not limit you in the regard to, to what you may say. Now this, this is one of the forms of a prophetic vision. What classically occurs is when you see what God is seeing, and you come back to the earth and you say what you're seeing, you're always ahead of the curve. So you appear to be out of step with the flow 
and the ebb of what's going on at that time. But the value of one who sees and declares what is seen, the value of the watchers, is that the course of history is inevitably shaped by the decrees that they bring back. Because it's not their decrees, it's not their ideas. They're observing how it is that heaven has dedicated itself to fulfilling that which has been declared in heaven to be accomplished on the earth. So one of the things John saw in the fifth chapter of Revelation was that the Lamb, the Lamb of God, because of His triumph on the earth, had been given the authority by God to draw men and women from every tribe, tongue, language, and people, and to form them into a royal priesthood and a holy nation. So, from the time that John saw that, until the time that it becomes fully operational on the earth, heaven is dedicated to bringing forth upon the earth the reality the reality of a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And that from that point on, it's only a matter of time before this thing that is seen in heaven appears on the earth. Now, this is to have advance notice. This is to have advance warning, so to speak. And as the times come in which these visions spoken from the heavens are being fulfilled more completely upon the earth, you who see and understand what God is doing will not be lost simply because things are being rearranged upon the earth to accommodate what God has already spoken from heaven. But if you don't see it that way, then you'll pull your hair out. Because there is no other human or earthly explanation that satisfies. Let me give you an example. And my premise is that you can see everything that is happening upon the earth from a heavenly point of view. More than that, you're supposed to see everything that is happening on the earth from a heavenly point of view. But frankly, if we dismiss those whose primary service to the body of Christ is to bring vision like this from heaven to earth. If we dismiss them, then nobody on the earth will be able to see from the point of view of heaven. We're all supposed to see from the point of view of heaven. But there are those whose task it is to so routinely bring us this vision that they will realign our perspectives to heaven so that then we will be able to fill in the gaps within the measures of our own operations. You see what I'm saying? Okay? <clears throat> I'm not asking you to agree with me, I'm just telling you what's true. <laughs> if you don't receive those who operate this way, then what's your portion will never come to you. Those who operate this way 
typically bring you the overarching picture. And once you hear that picture, you will have within you grace to fill in the blanks for the portions that affect you. But if you say it doesn't happen anyway, then it could run over you in the earth and you won't get it. About two years ago, I was in Greece, in Athens, and we were on the side of the road. And uh, we had stopped at one of these uh, places where tourists stop to spend money. And um, I saw this mail truck over to the side of the road. Mail trucks look the same, I think, all over the world. But in Greece, the word along the, 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 the side of the truck was the word apostolos. By the way, that's where we get the word postal from, apostolos. So I asked the guide, I said, what does that word apostolos mean? And she said, oh, that's the mailman. That's the mailman, casually. And that was the only thing I needed to know. So I didn't ask her any more questions. Bustolos are mailmen, messengers. The human messengers who ascend and descend are of the type, it's not exclusive to them, but they're of the type called apostolos. Now the apostolos does not generate the message. And the message is not uniquely for the consumption of the apostolos. You, when you write a letter to send to someone, or you have a package you want to send to someone, when you give it to the apostolos, the postman, you're not making a gift of the content to the postman. You're, you're charging him with the duty to deliver your message your package to a recipient who is the object of your intent. Right? Now you want to be sure that postmen reliably transmit the message. You don't want uh, uh, just a group of people who are um, whose reliability is suspect to take your mail. A lot of it would end up in the dump, being rifled for its values. You want reliable people, tested people, to deliver your mail. So God tests and proves the apostolos so that they can reliably transmit the message from heaven to earth from the throne of God to the intended recipients. When that happens, the people of God will never be in darkness about what the events around them mean. Now, in recent times, there have been numerous swirling events around us, and the people of God have been no better informed about what these things mean than the world around them. For a whole year now, in the Arab world, there have been 
revolutions that have resulted in the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people and in the change of governments and in the shift and changing of the face of the Middle East. Now, most of the prophets of any note in the evangelical church have remained absurdly and awkwardly silent about an astonishing ongoing phenomenon. I would dare say that if you took the, any of the names of the well-known prophets and googled uh, or, or searched their websites for information on what, has, what was first called the Arab Spring, now the Arab year, to find some template for the interpretation of what has been going on consistently, clamorously, for a whole year, you would be hard-pressed to find anything significant. And that's because most of them have established a paradigm of understanding that has little to do with the heavenly point of view and most to do with economic survival. Most of these prophets bought into the idea that when God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, that what he was saying was, if you bless Israel, then God will bless you. And so, whoever gets on TV and says, help me bless Israel, and God will bless you, will find people willing to send them money as much because they want the blessing that is promised as much as it is that they want to bless Israel. But that point of view fails to take into account that blessing Abraham was a specific thing that God basically, that, that, that the scriptures say, if you belong to Christ, this is Galatians now, Galatians 3, if you belong to Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So who is Abraham's seed? Christ is Abraham's seed. If you belong to Christ, then you come out of the promise that God made to Abraham. And whoever blesses those who belong to Christ will receive the blessing from God. Included in those who belong to Christ are all the Jews who are in Christ. But so also are all the Gentiles who are in Christ. But indeed, by the time you're in Christ, you're neither a Jew nor a Gentile, because you're a spirit being. A spirit man assembled to the spirit known as Christ. So, today's iteration of that heavenly message and promise is this. 
if you are in the body of Christ and an unbeliever blesses you or another believer blesses you in whatever way a blessing may be construed, then blessing will be returned to upon the one who blesses that which God is doing in the earth today. The other is basically witchcraft. Well, I know you draw, you draw air when you hear me say things like that. So I'll say it again. The other is basically witchcraft. Now, this is not an endorsement for hating the Jews. No more than it is that it's an endorsement for hating the Arabs. What is God doing with the Arabs? My point is our minds have been paralyzed by a view of these things that is unbiblical. And for a whole year, this has been the focus of God in the earth. And the Christian church has virtually no one who is speaking from a heavenly point of view. It's as if all this that God is doing, <coughs> He really isn't doing it. It's just happening. Well, if so, what else is just happening? When God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to whomever He wills. So what has God been doing for a year with the Arabs? Well, ten years ago, I began to tell you what God was doing with the Arabs, what God would do with the Arabs. Because I read a scripture that says all the flocks of Kedar and all the rams of Nebaioth, that scripture is Isaiah chapter 60, verse 7. For those of you who want to turn to it and look. God was saying, all the flocks of Kedar and all the rams of Nebaioth will come to me, and, and they will, I will adorn my house with them. This is the great passage that speaks of how kings will come to the rising of the dawn of the king of kings. As his kingdom progresses in its glory and in its function, he will begin to assemble the nations, he'll begin to take a people out of all the nations, and gather them into the house of God. The very thing that John saw when he was taken up into heaven and began to see the future from the point of view of heaven. So the question is, who are Kedar and Nebaioth? Well, Genesis 25, verse 12, 13, tells us. It says, the first and second born sons of Ishmael are Nebaioth and Kedar. Who is Ishmael? The son of Abraham. And the father of the Arabs. So what has God been doing for a year? God has been destroying the religion of Islam, which holds the sons of Kedar and Nabayath as captives. And he's nearly done with the destruction of, his, of Islam. Because as of today, in Egypt, the most powerful of the Arabic states, as of today, 
It's Egyptian against Egyptian. It's, it's Muslim against Muslim. As of today. This day. They've turned against the Muslim Brotherhood. Muslims have turned against the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt today. Now what is the future of a kingdom that is against itself? And you can say, we've been so compromised by the language of unbelievers that we, we don't want to say things that would cause us to be thought of poorly by the press. Who cares what the press has to say? I mean, if you do, you've got a problem. I'm not advocating we just run out and say wild and crazy and stupid things in front of the press, but we should not be muzzled from the truth by some notion that will be popular or not if reported upon. Who cares? Our problem is we're clinging too tightly to this life. So we don't have as much freedom to represent the Lord as we ought to have. But that will change. It's what's changing. Because you'll discover that the world does not love you. Indeed, it hates you like it hated the one that you represent. And soon enough, there will not be just a voice or two crying in the wilderness. Soon enough, there'll be a whole bunch of people in the wilderness. And then they'll be crying. <laughs> so what is God doing? He's bringing the Arabs in. How is he doing that? The God Allah, who is not the Almighty. Don't make that mistake. Because nobody's a son of Allah. No one is a son to Allah. Allah has no son. This religion opposes the notion that God has a son because it does not understand the purpose of a son. There is no place in this religion for a son because a son is the radiance of his father's glory. A son is the exact representation of his father's being. So if you see the son, you see the father. The invisible God is clearly seen being put on demonstration through his son. That's who, that's why we see God through his son. And that's why no one is God who does not have a son because the, the quintessence of the expression of love will result in the production of a son. That's why Allah is not a God of love. He's a God of wrath. If he were a God of love, he'd have a son. Because a father and a son are the quintessence of the expression of love. I don't, I, that's not what I want to unpack tonight. But that, 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 is, that is the essence of the difference. The sons of God, the sons of God, are the ones from whom he constructs his house. And he's drawing a people out of the tribes that came out of Ishmael, the father of the Arabs. This God is a God of wrath. 
is a God of war. My own view of it is that he's probably one of the seraphs, mighty seraphs who fell. A God of war. The only way to free a people who've been trapped under the rule of a God of war is to, do, to overthrow a God of war. The only methodology effective in overthrowing a God of war is to beat him on the field of battle. And that's why, that's why there has been for a year what appears to almost be spontaneous in its surprising all throughout the Arabic world, war. War. And in the end of it, the kingdom of Islam being divided against itself. The strategy of God is to divide the kingdom against itself. And it is working mightily. Now, where will the church be when the faith of a people in their God has been shattered? Where will the church be? If we're still on the sidelines thinking exclusively about God's relationship with Israel, which he does have, but not considering that God has a relationship also with the Arabs, we won't be part of the collecting of a people out of the nations, the, the ethnic groups called the Arabs, and receiving them into the kingdom. And I shouldn't say we, because the true body of Christ will see this from a heavenly point of view. That's why this sound is being made. Those who are stuck in, a, in an imprisonment of view of their own doing will simply be stuck. They will not be able to participate in what God is doing simply because their point of view forbids them from doing that. But what God is doing in the earth is he's collecting a people from every tribe, tongue, language and people. And he's intending to form them into a royal priesthood and a holy nation. It will be inclusive of the Arabs. And right now, in the earth, for a whole year, <coughs> God has been bringing them in. Or God has been setting the stage for them to come in. So the people of God should see this from a heavenly point of view and reposition their mindsets. To be able to pray that the will of God will be quickly accomplished and be positioned to receive Arabs by the droves as they come in. As God brings in the sons of Kedah and Nabayat, as he said he would. The, whether you believe it or not doesn't mean, does not determine whether or not it's going to happen. It only determines whether you'll participate with God in what he's doing. But he's going to do it anyway. And he is doing it anyway. Now, that's one of the things that's happening that you must see from an eternal point of view. Look at how quickly, the moment you see what God is doing, look at how quickly your tension level goes down about the event that's happening. The moment you see what God is doing, you're no longer uptight about the Arabs. You don't feel responsible. 
you want to cheer on what God is doing. Because you understand this is what God is doing. And so you pray according to the will of God. Let Islam fall. Set the people of God free. Who are the sons of Ishmael? You're not on the losing side. You're not on the side defined by fear. When you begin to see it that way. Let's take another example. And I'll bring, I'll bring it closer to home. I start overseas. That's always safer. <laughs> Establish the principle overseas because it's over there. And if people agree with you, they feel like they haven't given up anything. Because they'll never go over there. <laughs> so let's talk about Barak. <laughs> this is Midland, Texas, the home of presidents. Let's talk about Barak. <laughs> I know you don't believe there's a heavenly point of view to that. God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men except in this case. He didn't give our nation into the hands of this king. Of course not. This is God's nation. This only happened because we didn't pray enough. Or as one guy said, I had, if I knew I was going to quote him, I'd bring the, the thing that the church lady needed to sing. I guess she got laryngitis. And so God was obligated in the la at the last minute to just give it to however it happened. You've got to be, you've got to be asleep if you don't understand that when God gave it once and then gave it again, to the same king, God is doing something. <laughs> Are you looking at me like a calf looking at a new gate? <laughs> like, I can't believe he did that. He stepped into it, and how is he going to get himself out? This is not risk-taking at all. This is looking at things from a heavenly viewpoint. If people must awaken to the reality that their God is God. And when you see what God is doing from an eternal point of view, believe me, he doesn't care about Democrat and Republican. And the purpose of this nation, like the purpose of any nation, is to serve his purpose. And it would not surprise you, it ought not surprise you, that his purposes are not measured by a four-year allotment of time. <laughs> so, and it's not even that men are conscious that they are, the, they are the instruments and agents of God. They don't have to even know. They don't have to cooperate. God is sovereign. If you could find the faith to think, I'm not even asking you to say, but you you ought to be able to find the faith to think that God has given our nation twice into the hands of a man 
into the hands of the same man. And it, it did not happen because the church lady didn't pray or sing. It happened because that's what God is doing. Right? Now, I'm not asking you to agree with me. I'm just telling you what's true. But you see the problem? We, we can't even bring ourselves to agree that there is an eternal point of some things. The Arabs, okay, I can see that. Because, you know, we're not, going to, we're not going to walk downtown Midland and just uh, be inundated by Arabs. We're guarding the borders. So what is God doing? Giving this nation twice into the hands of this man. Well, think about the man himself. His father came out of Africa. Not an African-American, but an African, Kenyan, first generation, straight, a student out of Kenya, free man, never came here as a slave. Now, he meets and marries a woman who is a direct descendant of the first African to be brought to the United States as a slave. That piece was on Ancestry.com. Check it out. Yes, the white woman, his mother, was a direct descendant of the first African brought to the United States and sold as a slave. Whoa. So a free African comes 400 years later. A free African comes out of Kenya, marries up with the first African, the descendant of the first African who came here as a slave. What effect would that have on the offspring of the slave woman? would make her a free woman. That's, By the way, that's Romans 9. That if we're married to Christ, we who are slaves under the law are free by marriage to Christ. Right? So suddenly, do you know why Ishmael was not the son of promise, although he was Abraham's son? Because his mother was a slave and his father never married his mother. He remained a slave. And a slave cannot be an heir. Because a slave is already somebody's property. Even if the slave is a biological son, the slave has no right against his father. The only way this slave gains rights against his father is if the father marries his mother. That's what changes his position. An entire race of people in America, African Americans, 
have the culture of slavery even though slaves have been set free since the 1860s. But the culture of slavery has remained. And the clarity is that until this man came forth, the culture of the African American was, you can't ever be the man, the man being the president. The ceiling on the limitations of the African American was, somebody is always going to be over me. And there's a culture that says, Therefore, ultimately, I am not responsible. Now, from God's viewpoint, what is, the, what is the problem with that view? Problem with that view is this. If God is saying in the earth that you are my sons, you are my heirs, that message cannot resonate with an entire race of people Because they do not see themselves as heirs, but as slaves. So for them, they would be excluded from the message of God for the hour. So what did God do? God freed the slave by marrying her. Produce a son who is a free man to set that son upon the throne of a nation so that everyone of that race, 30 years and under, have a mindset that says, the man can be me. I can be an heir. God was moving the blocks to invite a people to come into and be part of the heritage of God and the house of God. The typical blockage to that has been that you cannot, you cannot, uh, a, a, a person who is a slave can never take up the incidences of being a son or being an heir. Everybody over the age of 60, in the black, I shouldn't say everyone, but the majority of people over the age of 60 in the black community is not likely going to change. But all the young people will have grown up in a time when it can no longer be an assumed position that white people hate black people because because white people elected this president not once but twice this is a done deal it is finished and now we will see an enormous shift in black society The message that has not found a place in black society, the message of fathers and sons, will now find a place because God has removed the blockage. And whereas before we've had a church 
comprised of blacks and whites. Now we will begin to see the people of God configured according to an eternal point of view, which is to say that fatherlessness will be put away from a people who have been classically fatherless. Because a father now is not limited to a natural father. Because the blockage to having a spiritual father who may be of a different race has been removed. In the, in the way that such things can be removed. These things cannot be removed purely in theory. <coughs> Pardon me. They have to be removed practically first. When you have white people twice voting for this president, the message has been cemented that it is not a given that black people white people automatically hate black people. And if fathers are unavailable in the black community, that will not be a bar to the house of God having fathers. Because white people in the spirit are capable of being fathers to black people, just as black people are capable of being fathers to white people in the spirit. But you have to start with the outer, with the outermost portion. If there is still this suspicion <coughs> that it's not, it can't happen because in the heart, the white person is judged and branded as a racist just because he, he is white, if it doesn't start with some tangible expression like people voting him in twice, then you can't, make, you can't cover the ground. But once that ground has been covered, it opens the way for the spiritual reality to come sweeping in like a tide. That's what God has done. Do you think that was worth two times in the presidency? God thinks so. God thinks so. And that's why it happened. What about the man's policies? Those are his policies, not God's. But because that's not what God is doing. His endorsement of same-sex marriage is not what God is doing. But he was necessary for the purpose of God concerning the things God is doing. You see? If you untangle yourself from the politics of a nation, you can begin to see what God is doing. But my question is, who are we anyway? Who are we anyway? And listen, if we don't start making this transition to seeing all events... From a heavenly point of view, we are already in the trap. And there is no help for us. Because the only help is the viewpoint of being seated on the throne. What do you think you see when you're seated with him in heavenly realms? You see what he sees. You don't get to sit on the throne and see what you want to see. When you sit on the throne, you will see what he shows you. Otherwise, you'll see and not see. Otherwise, you'll hear and not hear. 
And to you, a lion can only be a lion. It can't also be a lamb. Because you lack the intelligence of a heavenly point of view, the intelligence that comes by revelation, and you're strapped to the wheel of reason. And for all intents and purposes, the day of the Lord will pass you by while you're yet alive. A mature people is what God is looking for on the earth today. And a mature people is what he's entitled to have because of his investment. <coughs> now, what about the storm? <laughs> so you're reeling from, you know, I started slow with you. Then I gave you the throwaway about overseas. Then I brought up Barak. And now we go to talk about the storm. I'll make it quick and painless. <laughs> Maybe not painless, but quick. Like somebody said to me in Crane the other day. Said, uh, you can kill me, just don't hurt me. <laughs> I'll just kill you. I won't hurt you. <laughs> the storm came a week before the election. One friend of mine who is, uh, he likes to, he likes scientific things. So he was telling me about the storm and, and all of the things that had to converge in order for the storm to come. This late season, storm. Apparently there was a cold current coming down from the north uh, which brought the, uh, the storm back onto, in proximity to the coastline. And there was a high pressure system that pressed warm air very far south that fed the cycle. And when it hit the land uh, it had to hit at high tide. So uh, Lunar, lunar influences had to be brought into play and it occurred within an hour it had to occur within an hour so that the high tide would produce the storm surge now if such a thing had happened in Bible times you'd have said that's like the crossing of the Red Sea now we think because we know how it happens that we also know why it happens. The Bible told us why, but it held back the geological information. You know, the, the, the factors relating to the weather and geography. The Bible didn't tell us those factors, but it told us why. The wrath of God or the hand of God or God was letting his children through the water and so on. But now we have substituted scientific knowledge, which is the how, for the biblical why. And that's why we no longer see from a heavenly viewpoint. Because if you saw from a heavenly viewpoint, you would know why. If you see from an earthly viewpoint, you will know how. You see? From an earthly viewpoint, you could talk about all the factors that converge. 
What, why, why these, I mean, the fact that they happened in this way and what effect they had. That's how. But if you saw from a heavenly viewpoint, you'd understand why. When a storm comes a week before the election, what you should have known was it didn't matter which of them was elected. The storm had already come. Storm didn't come afterward. Had it come afterward, God would have said, I'm giving you over to your choice. But the fact that the storm came before, God was telling us it doesn't matter the outcome at all. The storm has come. That's what God was saying. Storm has come. And by the way, that doesn't mean a storm might come. Doesn't mean a storm might come. It has come. First the natural and then the spiritual. And this storm struck at the very center of the things that are important to us as a nation. Struck at the heart of our financial center. It also struck our governmental center. It struck in the areas where some of the most powerful religious uh, ministries are headquartered. Like North Carolina. And it struck at where one of the most popular of the debauched television shows has been filmed. It also struck New Jersey. That was not an afterthought of God, even though you might be tempted to think so. It was deliberate intent. The hand of God has struck a nation. Now what that tells me is this. The Bible says the restrainer will be taken out of the way. The restrainer will be taken out of the way. The Holy Spirit restrains the systems of men even when those systems function to oppose God. When the earth was created, the Holy Spirit was positioned over the void. And all of creation is subject to the restraint of the Holy Spirit inasmuch as he was the prime mover inherent in its creation. So he restrains it. Everything is held together by the word of his power. So he restrains things. A storm appears to be, by definition, chaos. The lack of restraint. God did not restrain the winds. And the, and the tide. 
I'll say it again because this is a generation that doesn't believe. How is why? And these sounds subject us to the accusation of being heartless, calloused, pontificating, knowing nothing, blowhards. Because everybody knows that it had to be a late season and these, these things appeared at random and, and the water came ashore. But other than that, it has nothing to do with God. His ministers are no longer like wind and Hebrews says that. Angels are as ministering servants, like wind and fire are ministering servants under the control of the Spirit of God. And unbelieving people have arisen, both within and without the church. And that's why an unbelieving people are content with the view of the how being the why. But God has not been impressed by our unbelief, nor has He choreographed his activities, to be restrained by what we believe or don't believe. God is still God. And if a people will not see, if a people will not see the hand of God and will not acknowledge God, then we will not know until the flood comes and takes us all away. It is not that the people who perished in these things, or who suffered loss, were sinners above all else. The word of the Lord in this time is this, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish, except those who are His people. Hmm? That's what the Lord is saying. Do you suppose that the restrainer being taken out of the way and chaos coming upon the land, when the restrainer would restrain the train from coming through and striking the, 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 the floats, that used to be the day when there was restraint. God restrained things and we took the restraint of God for granted and, but we invited him to depart from our public processes. On the one hand, our choice was, through our process, we produced a choice between one who openly advocates the practice of Sodom, national policy, and the other who is the, 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 the religious face of the occult. Seventy-nine percent of evangelical Christians voted for a Mormon. Do we have any idea what Mormonism is? In a nutshell, it is the religious face of Freemasonry. But nobody disclosed it. Our leaders the religious leaders covered their eyes 
and talked about the choice between the lesser of two evils. No, it was a choice between gross evil and gross evil. And when that time comes in the earth, God will say to his people, come ye out from among them. Our choice is not the one or the other. Our choice is to come out. How many of you agonized over, for the first time perhaps, over whether or not you could even pull the lever and vote between these two candidates? You should have agonized at a minimum. If you understood what your choices were. That's why the restrainer has been taken out of the way. The people have produced these choices. That's why the storm came. And that's why places like Orderly Midland, Texas are places in which the train will run through and kill four people. And don't say that anyone who has been struck, anyone who has suffered the disadvantages of the lack of restraint are sinners above all else. That's what Jesus said in Luke 13. He said, do you suppose that those whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices were sinners above all else? No, he said, I tell you. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I'm not saying that to you, to this audience. Because as I look over this audience, I see the people with whom I have labored for many years. I'm speaking a word in the world at this time, speaking a word to communities and to nations concerning the times in which we now live. In these times, the restrainer is being removed. The storm tells us that. Because this is where we have come to be. This is not a reversible course. This is not a reversible course. When the restrainer is being removed, our opportunity is, and that where I am, there you may be also. Find where the restrainer is and be there. And you will be at rest in the midst of your trials. The restrainer has not left the earth. The restrainer is removing himself where he's no longer welcomed. So find where the restrainer is. Say, so how can I do that? Look at everything from a heavenly viewpoint. And stand where the restrainer is. And you will stand in the zone of safety. You will stand in the zone of provision. You will stand in the zone of well-being. You will stand in the zone of care. We won't go back. We can't go back. It is not a time to go back. 
a people now will arise. I want to conclude my message with this reading. This is, at the end of the year, I typically, when I come, I will typically uh, give you a word. I want to read to you a word from the book of, uh, the book of Isaiah. Chapter 26. Verse 20. Apparently I needed to have internet access to be able to do this. So I'll have to quote it. Isaiah 26.20 The prophet Isaiah prophesying a time in the history of Israel said "Come Come my people enter your rooms and close your doors and hide yourselves for a little while for the Lord is about to come out in judgment in judgment against the nations. Now he didn't say, dig a hole in the ground and hide. He said, come my children. Come my children. Because God will protect his own. Come my children. Enter your rooms. This is a father telling them, come into the house now. Don't be playing in the street. It's a, it's a time the destroyer walked the streets of, his, of, of Egypt to destroy the firstborn. It would be like that. And a father would say, come my children, come into the house now. Enter your rooms. Go into your rooms and close your doors. Stay in there for a little while because something is about to happen and I don't want you on the street. That's the idea. It's not about fear. It's not about, it's not about terror. It's not that you have anything to worry about because your father is watching over you. So he says, come my children, come in now, come in, come in, come in. Enter your rooms, get in order, get into the house, close your doors, hide yourselves for a little while. Until indignation, which is the the term indignation means anger, wrath. God is indignant to which man has fallen. When the Bible talks about him being fierce, you'll now begin to see the stern face of God. The face of God will be stern toward the world. Listen. The heartbreak of watching the train come through, killing these four people. That's a hard, hard thing to happen. And if you say, where is God? I'm saying to you, his face is stern. That's not the gospel about God that you've heard. The God about whom you've heard is he's always accommodating. 
puts a God in your own image. But God as he is, at times, when he comes out in judgment, will wear the stern face of a judge. But what is judgment about? Judgment is about people seeing their condition as they actually are. To what What is the point and purpose of judgment? Being confronted with the desperate condition in which you are, you might actually turn. Because it doesn't confront you, and there's no opportunity to turn, and all go astray, what then is the final outcome? All have to be destroyed. The confrontation of God in this season is mercy. But we don't want that. We want for God to support us in the condition to which we have come. The Supreme Court has agreed to take up the question of same-sex marriage in this term. So we'll hear from the other kings of the land. The fact that we have this going on before the Supreme Court is in itself an indication of what has happened to the nation. This is a time when we will confront the stern face of a God who understands how precarious this nation's condition is. That it stands in the balances. And he being God is not up for election. His confrontation is to bring about a change of mind. Because if men do not change, all are bound over for judgment. I tell you no, unless everyone who has turned away from the living God repents. We will all likewise perish, not just four people on a flatbed float. That's the message, folks. Not just people in New Jersey or New York who've lost their properties and some of them have lost their lives. This is the condition of a nation unless we understand where we stand before God in this hour we will as a nation perish. Do we not understand? Do we not understand? No, it's not, every day is not a Friday. Every day is not Friday. We're in desperate times. A storm has come. And the response of a people ought to be to cry out to God in their desperation. We ought to see ourselves as we are and cry out to the living God. Not just for mercy upon our circumstances, but grant that we may yet repent and turn from our ways. That's the hour in which we are. If you will hide yourself, your doors and hide in him, you will be seated in a heavenly point of view. It is see everything in your lives 
It is no longer optional that you see everything in your lives and your circumstances from a heavenly point of view. You cannot keep defaulting to reason. You must rule your soul. You must give place to the Spirit of God. Your point of view has to be that of being seated in the heavenly realms in Christ. These are not easy times. These are the times of transition. You can tell I'm not running for anything. don't intend to run from anything either. Well, Merry Christmas.